And we are opening our Bibles to look to Jesus, just like that song said. Uh, we trust him. We need more of him. He is our hope. He is our life. He is our joy. He is our strength. He is our everything as a church. And I, I love that even up to this point, before I even step into the pulpit and open the Bible, we have already prayed the gospel. We've heard the gospel read. We have recited the truths of the gospel. We've sung the gospel together, and now we get to gaze at the gospel afresh in the word of God from Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be, like I said, in verse 24 to 29, and if you're looking for a sermon title this morning, very simple, Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim. Let me read this for us, and then I'll pray, and we will jump in because we got a lot of work to do this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Oh God, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And we know from your word that Holy Spirit is your ministry to make Christ known to us, to dwell in our hearts that we would trust in Christ by faith. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do what you do, which is to make Christ known to us afresh through the word this morning. Lord, that we would lay hold of the ministry of the Apostle Paul that was inspired by your Holy Spirit as he wrote these words down in this text to be preserved for us to this very day so that we can know Jesus. We pray that you would help us to know Jesus more as a result of seeing his glory in this text. God, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us afresh, knowing that you have revealed yourself in your word. God, I just pray that the Spirit would apply to our hearts. Help me, Lord, in all my weakness to preach the truth this morning. And I pray that it would be laid upon every heart and that every heart in this room would have a favorable response to the truth of your word. That not a single heart in this room, oh God, we pray, not a single heart in this room would be hardened to the proclamation of the gospel this morning. Would you soften hearts? 
do an amazing work in our midst this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What would things look like if Satan were given absolute control over a city? What would it look like if God were to say, let's just remove all common grace, let's remove all goodness. Satan, you have absolute control over this city. Michael Horton, in his book, Christless Christianity, draws this question out of an old radio address that was given by a well-known Presbyterian minister in Philadelphia named Donald Gray Barnhouse, who lived and preached in the early half of the 20th century. Barnhouse, in this radio address, imagined what a city could look like if Satan were allowed to have absolute control over that city. He speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, all of the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. Pristine streets would be filled with tidy-looking pedestrians who walked around smiling at one another. There would be no swearing, and all of the children would properly say, yes, ma'am, no, sir. And the churches in that city would be completely full every Sunday. But Christ would not be preached. This is a sobering, yet I think accurate, imaginative exercise. Barnhouse knows his Bible. And he knows how the enemy operates. So let's take Barnhouse's idea and just contextualize the question a bit this morning, shall we? What would Provo, Utah be like if Satan had absolute control over this city? Church buildings would be full. People would be busy with religious activities. Grannies would get walked across the street. Random trash would always be picked up by the next passerby. Smiles would be plastered across every face. People far and wide would be dressed in their Sunday best, boasting of all the ways that they are improving and progressing in their lives. They talk about their service projects. They talk about their promotions at work. They talk about their most recent causes that they are obsessed with. They would post about their perfect lives on social media. They would hype up their personal and family life for all of the world to see. They would volunteer at food banks and shelters and community projects. They would donate to charities. They would donate to organizations that do good to the city. They would volunteer to help with disaster relief. They would plant trees all over the place. They would exercise good practices by recycling everything that can be recycled. They would tutor and mentor the youth. They would reach out to the marginalized in society. They would feed the sick. They would visit the poor. They would organize fundraisers. They would help with youth sports. They'd promote literacy. They would help the guy stranded on the side of the road because his car broke down. And then they would all go to church where they would do little more than share inspiring stories about all that they did that week and how they're going to continue in this endless quest to progress in their good works. But you can be sure of this, church. Christ would not be preached. Satan would be pleased to distract the citizens of his city with all manner of good works. If it means that they would be blinded 
to their only hope of eternal salvation, which is Christ alone. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, then you know what I mean when I say that Satan will do all that he can to prevent Christ from being preached. Because to preach Christ is to announce with bold and sure hope both his person, who he is, and his work of what he has accomplished. It's to tell the world that we are broken and estranged sinners in need of reconciliation with our holy creator God. And the only hope of reconciliation to our holy God is in Christ Jesus. And the Christ Jesus of whom we preach must be preached accurately and correctly so that we know we have the right Jesus. The Jesus that Paul has revealed to us in Colossians is the only eternal God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is the creator of all things. And he came down from heaven and became man to deliver us from eternal death by defeating death by his own resurrection. The payment that was owed for our sin to a holy God was eternal death. The wages of sin is death. And that was a payment that we could never pay by our good works, by our own progress. And so Jesus comes, lives his perfect life, and gave his perfect life to die and pay the penalty for our sins. So what we've seen is that when we trust in Christ, we are fully and completely forgiven of all of our sins now and forevermore. But Jesus didn't just die for our sins and then remain dead. He rose from the grave on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So so in him... In that Christ Jesus, by faith, through faith in him alone, we can be raised to a new life, a new spiritual reality right now, and one day to a new physical reality of life in the world to come. Christ is now seated in heaven. He is now the eternal king, and his people starting now worship him forevermore. And that, in short, church, is what it means to preach Christ. It means you preach him to sinners in need of salvation as the only hope of their salvation. You preach him not as an example of what it means to be a better person. You preach him as the only one who was the perfect person and in whom we can have a righteousness credited to us that is not our own, which will enable us to stand before a holy God in the righteousness of Jesus so that we get declared righteous before that holy God instead of condemned to damnation. What we see Paul trying to make clear is that to preach Christ is to preach that you cannot trust yourself for salvation at all. You cannot trust your good works. You cannot trust your religious activity. You can't trust in a healthy family. You can't trust in a clean city. You can't trust in whatever you will try to trust in for hope because all of that will leave you in shame and in depression and in despair. Salvation is found in Christ alone. And here's what you need to know, church. Satan hates that message. He hates that message. And he is hell-bent on preventing the true gospel from reaching the ears of sinners who are desperately in need of salvation. In our text this morning, we're going to see 
that Paul is aware of all these spiritual realities. And out of his love for Christ, and out of his love for his fellow man, he devotes his life to stepping into that darkness with a blaring gospel spotlight, preaching the light of Christ. In fact, because of Paul's faithfulness to do just that, the gospel has reached our ears in 2023 in Provo, Utah, again today. You've already heard the gospel proclaimed today because the Apostle Paul was faithful to the ministry that he was called to, which was to clarify what the gospel is, what we're supposed to believe, and to preach it to a lost and dying world. And it's my prayer that as we look at Paul and his work and his Holy Holy Spirit-inspired words even this morning, we would remember that we are called to follow in the likeness of Paul in this sense, that we need to proclaim this Christ as well. It is our task and our duty to proclaim and to preach this Christ to a world who desperately needs him. And so as we go through this text, we're going to see four lessons of proclamation. Lesson one, the price of proclamation. Lesson two, the prize of proclamation. Lesson three, the presentation of proclamation. And lesson four, the power of proclamation. So let's look first at lesson one, the price of proclamation. Look with me at Colossians 1 verse 24. In fact, I'm going to jump back to verse 23 and read 23 and 24 just so we see a bit of the context here. Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, and then listen to this, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. In this verse, Paul articulates the price of proclamation. And the price in short church is suffering. That's the price of proclamation, suffering. Now, this is one of the more difficult passages in the Bible to interpret. In fact, there's a few different possible interpretations of this text that we don't have the time to cover. So I'm going to explain to you what I think that this means, and then you can go and investigate on your own afterward if you would like to try to see if you think something different. But no matter your particular interpretation, all of the interpretations point to this point. The price of proclamation is clear. Paul teaches us that the gospel does not advance apart from suffering. Did you hear that? This gospel that he preaches does not go to the ends of the earth without suffering. Paul must suffer to proclaim the truth of salvation in Christ or it doesn't go to people who desperately need it. And because of Paul's love for the gospel, And because of Paul's love for Christ, because of his love for the church, which is, of course, made up of all those who are going to believe the proclamation of the gospel and be saved, Paul can say in this verse that he rejoices in his sufferings. Now, to some, this would appear like a literally insane claim. 
rejoice in your sufferings? I mean, come on, what's, what's wrong with you, Paul? Is Paul sick in the head? Well, why would he say he's rejoicing in his sufferings? Is he a glutton for punishment? Does he have some sort of weird pleasure in seeking his own pain? And the answer to that is no. Paul rejoices in his sufferings. Why? For the church's sake. He rejoices in his suffering in the same way that a mother rejoices in childbirth. A mother doesn't rejoice in the pain of childbirth. A mother is rejoicing in the baby that arrives as a result of the mother enduring that suffering. So Paul rejoices in his sufferings because it's through his sufferings that the gospel has reached new believers all over the Roman Empire as a result of his ministry. And so he goes on in this verse to explain this by saying, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, this is the phrase that can be difficult to interpret. And before I explain what I think this means, let's just be really clear on what this phrase does not mean. And that is an interpretive principle that all Christians should follow, by the way. When you come to a passage in the Bible that seems sticky and really difficult to understand, you don't go by just making up your own interpretation of it and, uh, and going for a surface level understanding. No, 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 you need to jump in and look at the immediate context so that you can determine what that is not saying, even before you perhaps determine what it is saying. This phrase does not mean that anything is lacking in the atoning sufferings of Jesus Christ. Okay, it, it does not mean that there is any insufficiency in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we know that because Paul has labored to make that abundantly clear even in chapter 1 of Colossians up to this point. The, the entire argument that Paul is making against the false teachers in Colossae is that Christ is supreme and sufficient. He is God and his work is all that is needed for your salvation. There's no lack in the substitutionary life, death, resurrection, or ascension which Jesus lived on behalf of his people. In him and in him alone, there is complete full and guaranteed salvation. So we know that that's not what Paul is talking about when he's saying there is some lack that he's making up for in the afflictions of Christ. So what then does Paul mean when he uses that particular phrase? Well, first, we should know that Paul is hinting at the fact that he isn't referring to soteriological or salvific lack. In other words, he's not referring to matters of salvation here when he's talking about lack because he uses the word afflictions when he says this. And nowhere in the Bible is, is uh, that Greek word used in reference to Jesus's atoning suffering. Okay, so just know that. Well, then what is lacking, we may ask? Paul has in mind here the messianic ministry that was predicted in Isaiah, which if you know the book of Isaiah, you know that Isaiah is predicting this suffering servant who's going to come. And through this suffering servant, something new is going to break into the world. And this new hope, this new glory, this new promise is going to move throughout the world, stretching even all the way to the Gentiles. Now, Jesus, we know, is the suffering servant. 
But Jesus did not fulfill the work of advancing that messianic missional ministry to the ends of the earth in his earthly life. Instead, Jesus fulfills that ministry through his chosen apostle, Paul. In fact, in Acts 9, where the conversion of Paul is recorded, we see that the Lord appears to Ananias, who is a faithful Christian, in a vision. And the Lord comes to Ananias right after he has converted Paul, and he says, Ananias, I need you to go out into the street and find this guy Saul. Of course, Paul's name was Saul at that time. Still probably was even after the fact, just the difference between what he'd prefer in the Hebrew world versus the Roman world. But anyway, that's a side note, free for you. Ananias, of course, knows about Saul, and he thinks to himself, Lord, I'm not going to go talk to that guy. That's the guy who's breathing out murderous threats to all the Christians. There's no way I'm going to go and find him on the street and say, hey, you want to come into my house and talk for a little bit? Paul's arresting people like me. Why would we do, why, why would I go to the person who is persecuting you and your church, O oh Lord? And so he responds to the Lord in confusion. But here's what the Lord tells Ananias. He says, go. For he, being Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Okay, so now we can understand that the lack that's being talked about here is a missiological lack. In other words, it has to do with the call that God has placed on Paul's life to go to the Gentile world, proclaiming the gospel of God for the salvation of those who are far away from God, all to the glory of God. That's Paul's calling. That's Paul's task. Many of us would be included in these Gentile peoples who, because Jesus chose Paul to extend this messianic mission to the ends of the earth, we can now say today, I am in Christ because of his faithfulness to do what Jesus called him to do. And Paul, in that calling, deeply identifies himself with the sufferings of Jesus. He deeply identifies all of who he is and all of what he is doing with Jesus and who Jesus is. Paul sees himself as a suffering servant who is a servant of the true suffering servant. And so every trial in Paul's life he understands as a participation in Christ. Christ is in me. I am in him. And I am doing what he calls me to do. He controls me. He is my Lord. He is my master. Paul's identity is so wrapped up in Jesus that every suffering he sees, he sees as an extension of the very sufferings of Jesus. Now, I just used a phrase a minute ago that you may not know very well. That phrase is participation in Christ. What does that mean? This is a phrase that you ought to know, to participate in Christ. As we've seen again and again, Paul sees the entire Christian life, not just for him, but for every Christian, as being focused upon and lived in Christ. So that's why he uses the term in Christ over and over again. Go read Paul. You're going to say in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. All the time, Paul is using this little phrase. And the reason he's using it is to show the centrality of Jesus in the life of the Christian. Participation in Christ is a way of referring to this theological truth, that the Christian is going to partake 
in all of the fundamental elements and events of Christ's own life and narrative. Because we have been identified with Christ and included into him by faith, our life narrative is now identified with Jesus. Our life narrative is no longer about self and whatever we thought our life was going to be beforehand. When we are in Christ by faith, our whole existence gets interpreted within the realm of who Jesus is and the kind of life that he lived. So that means that we now, as Christ's people, interpret every event in our lives, if we're understanding participation rightly, as participation in the narrative of Jesus. Here's what that means. He suffered. We suffer. He loved sacrificially. We love sacrificially. He died, we will die. He resurrected from the dead, we will resurrect from the dead one day as well, and already have spiritually. He ascended into heaven, we will ascend into heaven. And all of this is guaranteed for the Christian because we are in Christ. Christ is our life, he is our all, he is our everything. This is what happens in and to the Christian. So, so we crucify every other fundamental identity marker and we claim primarily to Jesus to understand who we now are and how we now are to live. And so church, Paul suffers for the church universal to get the gospel to them in the likeness of Jesus who took on human flesh and suffered in this world as a man as he went about proclaiming the gospel of God, proclaiming his kingdom to a world who needed to know him as well. So now Paul, we need to understand, had a unique calling to affliction as an apostle. So we don't relate to Paul in the sense that we have the same afflictions that an apostle would have. There seems to be some unique affliction that the apostle Paul experienced that was a result of his apostolic calling to be the unique one who would take the gospel to the Gentiles. But I do believe that we ought to identify with the sufferings of the apostle Paul because Paul is always telling churches, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow in my example as I follow Jesus. In fact, Paul even tells Timothy, who is not an apostle, to join in suffering. Listen to what he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.8. Paul says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. What's that saying? Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Preach the gospel. Don't be ashamed about the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share in suffering for, for the gospel by the power of God. All right. I know I just like unloaded a fire hydrant of theology on you all here. But here's the general principle that we need to know. Christians should be willing to suffer to ensure that the gospel continues to advance to the ends of the earth. Or maybe let me put that a little more clearly. Christians should expect to suffer as we advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. Proclaiming Christ with boldness in a world that is dominated by the domain of darkness will result in suffering. Satan does not want Christ to be preached, church. 
in a world that is filled with people who are held captive by their sin and by Satan. People who are just like we used to be before God set us free and brought us out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. People like that will not want to hear the gospel we preach naturally, so expect to suffer. You can expect affliction of all sorts of kind as you are faithful to the call to advance this gospel message that you have received. Theologian writer, one of my favorites, John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, recalls hearing a lifetime missionary speak. The missionary was J. Oswald Sanders, and Piper recalls him preaching a powerful sermon on suffering for the mission of God. And the sermon cut Piper to the heart. And in that sermon, Sanders told the story of an indigenous missionary who was going from village to village, walking barefoot to preach the gospel to all who would hear in the country of India. And after a long day of many miles one day, after experiencing much discouragement, this man came to a certain village and he tried to speak the gospel, but he was spurned for it. They rejected his gospel. They rejected him and they turned him away harshly. They said, get out of our town, get out of our city. And so this man, having exhausted himself to get this message to this town, goes outside of the city, right outside of it, finds a tree, a little bit of shade, collapses under the tree, and falls into a deep sleep for a few hours. And when he awoke, the entire town was gathered under the tree to hear him speak. And the head man of the village explained to him that they had come and looked him over while he slept. And because of his blistered feet, they concluded that he must be a holy man and that they had been evil to reject him. They, they were sorry and now wanted to hear his message. I want to hear the message that a man would cause his feet to bleed to get to me. Church, this is the call of every Christian in different degrees in the mission of God. The world will be reached by blistered feet. The, the gospel will, will advance through the suffering of God's messengers. And it's love, love for God, love for the gospel, and love for our neighbor who will die in their sin if they don't hear about our Jesus that will force us to go to whatever lengths necessary to ensure that that good news reaches the ears of sinners who need salvation. And we need to hear this message this morning, church. And here's why. Because unlike much of America, here in Utah County, we are living in a frontier mission field. Now, there's places where it could be harder to go. So I am not negating that. And some of you may be called to go to places that are harder than here. Some of you may be called to go to places that are more lost, places that have less access, places that have less physical well-being and comforts from this world than what we have in Utah County. But here in Utah County, we live in a sea of lostness. Some of you may know this, some of you may not. I've said this before, I'll say it again, I'm sure. Utah County, the, the, the county we live in, is a metropolitan area of close to 700,000 people. 
And our metropolitan area is the least reached metropolitan area in the United States. Our metropolitan area is 0.49% Christian, and that's just the people that check the box on the survey saying that they are. There's a lot less Christians here than even that. If you don't know how frontier mission stuff is classified, if you're less than 2% evangelical Christian, you're considered an unreached place. You're considered a frontier mission field. You're considered a place where it is hard to be a Christian, a place where people are going to have little to no access to the gospel, a place where when you live in that place in whatever city or neighborhood you live in, you're going to know only people who don't know your Jesus yet. And here in Utah County, the enemy has a stranglehold on this vast population. And you better believe that he doesn't want to loosen his grip. Church, we are surrounded by religious people who are broken in their sin. People who need the hope of the gospel that we possess. And make no mistake about it. Living in a place like this means it's hard to be a Christian here. There's many of us who have left the comforts of the good cushy Bible Belt Christianity. We've left the comforts of bigger churches. We've left the comforts of Christian institutions and Christian schools and Christian this and Christian that. We've left the comforts of having a plethora of Christian friends. And we've even left the blessing of family so that we could come here and advance the gospel. Now, so, some of you have lived here your whole life. I remember hearing one brother who was talking about what it was like to live here in Utah County. He was like, does the fish know the water's wet? <laughs> you know, like, this is just what I've known my whole life. But it affects you even if you've grown up in this. You just don't know it. We live in a place that is unbelievably dark, a place that is occupied by demonic forces, a place where Satan, the enemy, is holding the minds of men and women captive to lies rather than believing the truth that can set the captives free. And because of this, it's a risky place to be a Christian. This is a place where believers are frequently tempted toward despair, are tempted toward hopelessness, are tempted toward callousness, are tempted toward all manner of sins. Now, why? Because the gospel does not advance in a broken world easily, church. The gospel advances on blistered feet. So yes, it is hard to be a Christian here. And yes, we are supposed to love God and love our neighbor to such a degree that we can say, I rejoice in my sufferings. Because someone who otherwise would not hear the gospel may get to hear the gospel because I am here. So can I just compel you, dear Christian, don't run away from the work, but embrace it. Don't run away from a place that is hard. Embrace it. Because embracing suffering in the mission ought to, like Paul, lead to a level of rejoicing that is only explainable by the power of God at work in the soul of man. That's exactly the way Jesus wants his people to live. So we're called to preach him, proclaim him, dig your heels in, in the hard places, places like Utah County. Go broke for Jesus. Don't give in. Don't back down. Don't lose heart. If you are 
discouraged and struggling with the context that you're in, press into Jesus and keep on proclaiming. Suffer for as long as the Lord allows you to live to ensure that people who otherwise wouldn't hear the good news of the gospel get to hear it even here in this city. Because by doing that, you are giving hope to dying men, which leads to our next lesson, lesson two, the prize of proclamation. The prize of proclamation. Look with me at Colossians 1, 25 to 27. Paul writes, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul here is stating his role as a minister of the church who has been called to steward God's people. That's his job. Now, a steward was a slave in a Roman household who was placed over the management of the home to care for the master's property. And Paul's calling means that he sees his job as being caring for the church of God. And that care happens by him making the word of God, don't miss this, fully known. How does Paul rightly oversee the church, rightly make sure that the church is on a good foundation, rightly make sure that this church is going to grow to health in Christ? He makes the word of God fully known. Now, this is an amazing line that we got to pay attention to here. Paul's apostolic calling, don't miss this. His apostolic calling is to complete the job of making God's word known to God's people. Now, here's why that matters. The apostles, we know, were assigned in the early church not to form a basis from which more apostles could be appointed in the future who would continue to give more revelations on in the future in an open, endless cycle of revelatory experience. No, Paul is actually warning against that sort of thing to the Colossians because the Colossians are being led astray by these false teachers who are coming in and saying, you need to be having these revelatory experiences. You need to be having these spiritual experiences. That's the substance of faith is what these false teachers are saying. No, Paul's saying, no, the real apostles like me, our job is to make the word of God fully known. That means to complete the word of God for the people of God. So the apostles' job is to lay down the final revelation of God for the people of God through their teaching. And the church now carries on the message of the apostles to advance the kingdom. We have the apostolic message. Now we preach that message so that people would believe in the one true God who is revealed in Christ and explained by the apostles. So the church isn't to have a succession of apostles. We are to carry the apostles' teaching to the ends of the earth. Paul made the word fully known. Fully known. Not partially known. Fully known. But Paul goes on to explain in particular here what he has in mind when it comes to his revelatory teaching. And that's the mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, but now has been revealed to the saints. And this mystery that Paul says that he is revealing 
that he is preaching that's been revealed to the saints is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This idea of mystery actually has its roots in the Old Testament, and in particular it has its roots in the book of Daniel. Daniel is the only place in the Old Testament where this word mystery was used in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation, the Bible that Paul would have used in his day. The revelation of the mystery refers to the interpretation of the king's dream there in Daniel chapter 2. If you don't recall, let me just explain that to you quickly. The dream that the king has, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2, is a dream of a large statue that represents the great kingdoms of the earth. And there's four parts of the statue that represent four great kingdoms that will exist on the earth. And in the dream, a small rock comes in and smashes the statue into pieces. And that rock takes central place within this dream. And the rock begins to grow and turns into a mountain that fills the earth. That rock, we come to find, represents God's kingdom. God's kingdom, which will defeat the evil kingdoms of the earth in the last days. So, so the scholar G.K. Beale notes this. The primary point of the dream was that in the end times, God will destroy the kingdom of evil and establish his own eternal kingdom. Now, church, what you got to see is that that is exactly what's happening with the arrival of Jesus. That's what he accomplished in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus is the stone that comes in and smashes all the kingdoms that are built on the evil of men. And so in Christ, a new world order is established. And Christ is definitively king of that new kingdom. So King Jesus then is doing his work through his people in the world, releasing captives by the power of his gospel from the domain of darkness. His kingdom is advancing to the ends of the earth. This is the mystery that's now been revealed. The kingdom is not just consolidated to the people of Israel in the Holy Land anymore. Jesus came to Jerusalem, did the work required to save sinners, and now that message is going out and spreading and filling up the entire earth. And so the mystery that Paul is writing about here is no longer a mystery. Uh, this, this is something that was unfolding revelation throughout the Old Testament, and it became a visible reality in the person and work of Jesus. And so that's why Paul says, we preach Christ. And the result is that now both Jews and Gentiles alike can know the spiritual reality that brings the hope of glory. And here's what it is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the hope of every Christian. And every Christian knows that hope. It's the hope that every Christian ought to proclaim. Friends, if you feel lost, you need Jesus in you. The gospel, friends, brings hope to the world because it brings Christ into the hearts of dying men and women and children who have no hope apart from him. So as we preach Christ, he becomes real to his saints. And that fills them with hope. That is the prize of proclamation. It's Christ in you and Christ in the church. Several years ago, I had to have a surgery to repair an injury that I had. 
And for the surgery, I had to go 24 hours without eating beforehand. And I had to go something like 12 hours without drinking beforehand so that the anesthesia would have its effect. So I go in for the surgery. They put me under. The surgery was successful. Everything was good. Now, the operation was done in an outpatient center. And here's what that means. They wanted to get me out of there as fast as they possibly could. Let's get this guy out. He's good. He's done. But here was the condition that I had to meet before I could leave. I had to complete a full lap of walking around the facility on my own before I could go. So after I had awoken and was feeling well enough lying there in the bed, the nurse stood me up. And immediately when she stood me up, I about passed out. So I had to sit down back on the bed. Sat there for a little bit longer. She said, just take some time. Hopefully you'll feel better here in a bit. Well, after a while, she comes back and I said, okay, I think I'm ready to try again. And I was ready to get out of there too. It's like, I got to get out of here before five o'clock. Otherwise I'm going to be charged for a whole night. I don't want that. So let's get out of here. Let's do this. Let's make it happen. And this time I made it out of the room, but I only made it a few steps down the hallway and my entire world started spinning and I almost passed out right there again. And so somehow she and my wife working together, get me back into the bed. And at that point, my wife, who is also a nurse, starts paying attention to what's going on. And she asks the nurse very kindly, have you replenished his fluids yet? And therein lied the problem. I still had had no water in my system for close to 16 hours, and the effect of the anesthesia was still running through my veins. The standard practice that nurses are supposed to do is they're supposed to replenish the body with water by pumping IV, pumping water into an IV after the surgery, and my nurse had forgotten that. So it was no wonder I couldn't walk. So, so she goes and gets the fluid bags hung up, and the water begins to feel, fill my veins. And within minutes, I could tell the difference. I kid you not. Minutes, I could tell the difference. Because water was within me, and that water brought life to my body. And only a few minutes after that IV was complete, I was like, I'm ready to go. And I was up walking, no problems at all. But the lesson stuck with me. My body was impaired because of the drugs that I had in my system. And the only answer to that problem was to pump clean water into me, which would restore my body to the way that it was supposed to be. In church, all humanity, what Paul is trying to say is drugged with sin, hopelessly drugged with sin. And the only hope is that Christ, who is the living water, would be pumped into their veins. Christ in us is the hope of glory. Christ in us is life. Christ in us is peace. Christ in us is joy. Christ is all. So when he is preached and when we hear him proclaimed, it brings life and hope to all who believe. And so like Paul says here, we preach him. That's why Christ is the only solution. He's the only living water. He's the only one who can make people who are dead alive. He's the only he is the only solution to the poison that is in our souls. And so lesson three, Paul tells us the presentation of proclamation. In chapter one, verse 28, Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. If Christ is in us, then we know the hope of glory. 
And if Christ in us is the only hope of glory, then what else follows but then that we preach him because he has received through hearing. We proclaim Christ. We preach him. Notice how Paul switches here in this verse from the personal autobiographical language of the I to the we here. Paul is wanting to be clear. Now this is the task of every Christian. We preach Christ. And to preach Christ is, we see Paul say, to warn and to teach, to admonish and to teach. Okay, Christ is not a subjective experience that you're supposed to simply feel inside. He's an objective person that we are to admonish and teach people about. The, the gospel itself is not an inner experience, church. The gospel is Christ and what he accomplished. And so that's what we preach. We don't preach feelings. We don't preach seeking after religious experiences. We don't preach morality and ethics for their own sake because none of that would give eternal life and hope to a lost and dying world. We preach Christ. Why? Paul says that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Now that word mature carries a connotation of complete. More than likely, it's referring to the same sort of end-time presentation that Paul referenced in verse 22 when he wrote of Christ's reconciling work, which is the means by which we are presented holy and blameless and above reproach before God. We have that status now in Christ before him, but the moment we are placed into Christ, we do begin to grow in a holiness. We begin to grow in Christ's likeness, but all that happens not with our own will, with our own desires, but within the sphere of Christ who is transforming us into his image by his own power. So, so you may remember from last week, Paul moves from reminding the church about their blameless position in Christ before the Holy God to a charge that they must continue in the faith. Now here we see how we continue in the faith once again, that we might be presented before God as mature. And that's simply by keeping our eyes on Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. You want to grow in your Christian life? Listen to Christ preached. You want to see other people grow in maturity in Christ? Then preach Christ to them. Preach him to them. The preaching of Christ is the means by which God preserves his people and grows them into Christ's likeness. Now, now church, I hope that you keep seeing this great truth. If you're struggling in your life in any way, what you need to do is set your gaze on Jesus afresh. So some people might think, Oh, man, that, that, that gets old. You just preach Christ all the time. Well, I just I want something new. I want something different. I want something that we've never heard before. Yeah, but that's not going to give you any help because Christ is the only one who can save your soul. I never get sick of my wife saying, I love you. You should never get sick of Christ who is your life being preached to you. Your life is in him. Your joy is in him. Your hope is in him. He is the object of your faith. And so what you need to do every moment of every day is lay hold of him afresh. But, but not only that, Paul's making clear, we must preach him. But to whom, you may ask, to whom am I to preach Christ? Well, did you notice when I read that verse, the repetition that Paul uses to make that to whom clear? Warning, Everyone, teaching 
everyone, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So who needs Christ church? Everyone. Everyone needs Christ. We preach Christ to our children. We, we preach Christ to our teenagers. We preach Christ to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors, to everyone. We preach Christ who is in the most desperate, hopeless situation because he has wrecked his life with sin. He's wrecked his life with drunkenness. He's wrecked his life with lust. He's wrecked his life with all manner of ungodliness. We preach Christ to him because Christ can save him. And then we walk across the street and we talk to our neighbor who has been a religious man for his entire life who has done all the things that he thinks are necessary to be considered righteous before God, but who is trusting in his own righteousness, we go to him and say, that'll do no good. You need Jesus. We preach him, him alone, he alone, he alone can save. So preach Christ, church. Go and proclaim him. Preach him in the streets. Preach him in the hospitals. Preach him in the prisons. Preach him in the shelters. Preach them on the university campuses. Preach them in your communities. Preach them over your tables. Preach them at your children's bedside. Preach them near. Preach them far. Preach them from every book of God's good Bible and tell people who he is from that book. This is the mark of every true Christian in every true church. We preach Christ. And we keep preaching him until our dying breath. leads lesson four the power of proclamation look at verse 29 Paul writes for this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me The call to preach Christ, church, is not an easy call at all. In fact, for Paul, the call to preach Christ led to an absolute exhaustion. I think it's true that every Christian should toil in the preaching of Christ but what we need to see is that I think it's especially exhausting for people who are toiling in unreached places where the gospel has not yet broken in, places that are similar to where Paul preached Jesus. You're going to be exhausted. Paul said, for this, I toil. Okay, that, that word to toil is to labor in a wearisome effort. There's probably not a stronger word that Paul could have used to try to say that he did a work that caused utter fatigue, utter exhaustion, like he had nothing left in the tank. I don't know about you. I've only been here for two years, but I find that word, toil, deeply encouraging to my soul. Now, here's the reality, beloved. Proclaiming Christ in a world that thinks they don't need him as their all-sufficient Savior, is absolutely exhausting. 
And doing that in Provo, Utah is probably more exhausting than most places in the world because people think that they have Christ when they don't. And so it's like we have to labor all the more to make clear who Jesus really is so that you know the Christ that can save you. Remember John 8, Jesus says, if you do not believe that I am he, who is the he? Yahweh, God. If you don't believe that Jesus is the one and only true God, that there is no other, that he is the creator of all things, that he is the God of the Jews, the God of the Old Testament, there's not a collection of gods out in the ether that we're all trying to progress to become. No, 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 there's one God and we are the creation. He is the creator. And when we talk about that creation, creation, distinction, Jesus is very definitively on the side of creator, not on creation. And, and Jesus says, if you don't believe I am he, what does he say in John 8? You will die in your sins. It's our task to make Christ clear to people. So that if they're going to reject him, they're rejecting who he truly is. And not the image of him that they've created for themselves. And I am telling you, church, in a place that is filled with satanic deception, that will be exhausting. You will find yourself feeling like you are at the bottom of your capacity. You will find yourself questioning whether or not you should still go on. But I hope that, like Paul, out of a love for God, out of a love for who he is, knowing this God deserves to be proclaimed to all the nations. This God deserves to be worshipped by all people. I hope that out of a love for God and out of a love for your fellow man, out of a love for your neighbors right here in Provo, Utah, out of a love for your family and friends and coworkers and everybody else who you find around you, that you will want to say, I have hope that you need. I have a gospel that can save your soul. People need Jesus. They need Jesus, like Paul says here, in them, through faith. They need to trust in him so that they can know the, the, the dwelling place of God once again. People here are seeking something, friends. They're not just seeking nothing. They're seeking something, and we know the one true God that they ought to be seeking. So let's preach him to them. Otherwise, they won't hear. They won't know. They won't believe. And that's going to be exhausting. That's going to be wearisome. But don't just apply this to our neighbors. I want to apply this to another group of people. How about our own children? How about our own children? Mothers, I wonder if you ever get exhausted in the work of gospel-centered parenting. Do you ever feel overwhelmed? Do you ever feel spent? Do you ever feel as if you don't have any strength left within you? Well, what do you do when you're in that place? Paul tells us here, we keep striving. So Paul says, keep striving, keep on fighting. But, but we aren't fighting for ourselves. I'll remind you, we're fighting for the glory of God. We're fighting because we love God. We're fighting because we love our children, our family, our friends, our coworkers. We want them to know the hope that can be within them in Christ. And when we keep striving in this tiring work, when we keep 
fighting, when it's the 15th round and we feel like we can't lift our arms for another punch, what we see Paul saying is God will provide the power to go on. That's what Paul's saying here. He is struggling not with his own energy, but with Christ's energy as he powerfully works in Paul. I mean, do you know, dear Christian, that there is a power within you to preach Christ in the, 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 the Christ that can save in the most dark places, not in spite of your weakness, but because of your weakness. Christ will use you in your weakness. When you're at the point where you think you can't go on, that's when God's strength shows up and his power is made perfect in your weakness. You see, God allows suffering, even in the lives of his own people, so that we stay dependent upon him, so that we're not ministering in our own power, but we're ministering in the power that he provides. See, when you detach yourself and you try to live independent on your own strength, that's when you find yourself empty. The words that the Christian should never utter when the Christian is walking in faith in Christ is, I can't. Because Paul says in the midst of the deepest kind of suffering, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's Christ who strengthens the believer. Christ in us. Christ the hope of glory. He enables us in his power to go on. You know, in my house, I've got two types of power tools in my tool collection. Some of my tools are battery-powered tools, and others are powered by a cord. Now, now, the battery-powered option is great in many ways, but there's only one problem. The power is limited. And when the battery is dead, the tool becomes useless. And here's what I'm saying, church. Some of you are trying to live by your own battery power. And the truth is, your battery started off on empty. But you're still trying to work autonomously of the only true source of spiritual power. You see, the Christian life is not a battery-powered life, my friends. It's a life that only thrives with power when it's plugged into the source of all power, which is the mighty, one and only, true, all-powerful God. So are you plugged into him? Are you plugged into him by holding fast to his words and denouncing the lies of the enemy? Are you holding on to him by living a life that's devoted to prayer, casting all your anxieties upon him, knowing that he cares for you? Are you living in his power by staying plugged into the community of the church that he ensures are filled with the believers who are going to remind you of his word and who are going to pray for you when you are in the moment of your weakness? His power is administered through his means. Are you plugged into him? You need to be. We all need to be because like Paul, we can only press on in the work of Christ when Christ is in us and when we are in him. When we are dwelling in his presence on a daily basis, walking in faithfulness, putting one foot in front of the other, trusting that even when we feel our strength is spent, his power will meet us right there to do what we know we ought to do, to obey his word and to preach Christ.
Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, we do pray that we would preach Jesus clearly. Father, I pray for the weak saint in this room who does just feel like they're struggling to go on. I pray for the saint who feels like the ship is filling up with water faster than they can bail it out. Oh God, let them know Jesus is in their boat. Lord, we trust you. What more can we do? And we just ask that as your people who are weak and needy, who are powerless in and of ourselves, seek to walk in faith and proclaim Jesus. God, we ask that you would do a mighty work in this valley. We ask that you would push back the forces of darkness. We ask that you would put Satan and his armies to flight. We pray that they would flee from these mountains, that they would flee out of this valley, and that your light would penetrate the hearts of men who desperately need the hope of salvation. God, I pray that you would give your people to live with conviction, to live in truth, to live with clarity about who you are to the people who are currently lost in the deception of the religion that dominates this valley. Let them see you, God. Show yourself to them through the proclamation of your weak saints that we would get to glory in your power that's at work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to get now to take this meal. And this meal, as you know, represents the body and blood of Jesus. And there is a very real sense in that when you take this meal, you are taking the gospel into yourself by faith. You are trusting that you as a weak sinner need Christ in you and that he is your only hope of glory. There won't be any glory apart from Christ, not on the last day. He is your hope of glory. This meal is a tangible way where we every week take the body take the blood that's represented in the bread and the cup and we bring it into ourselves, remembering Christ in me is the hope of glory. Christ, strengthen me. Christ, guard me. Christ, be near to me. That's what we're remembering in this meal. And in this meal, he is present with his people in a special, unique, covenantal way. You know, the, uh, the Old Testament, they used to have covenant meals Meals that would represent significant times when covenants were made and things of that nature. This is a covenant meal. And that means it is for all of those who are in the covenant, meaning all those who are in Christ by faith. If you can say, I am in Christ and Christ is in me because I have placed my faith in him and in him alone, I am holding on to nothing that I bring. I'm only clinging to Jesus Christ. Then this meal is for you. This meal is for you to recall the glory of the gospel of what he accomplished in his life, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension for you. But if you're not yet in Christ, we're just going to ask that you let this meal pass you by today. We just ask that you don't take this meal, but you come to Jesus first. You need to come to him. You need him in you more than you need this representation in you. You actually need him in you. And so if Christ is not in you and you are not in him yet, don't take the meal today. Talk to us. Let, let us pray with you. Let us work through scripture with you. Let us show you who Jesus is and pray that the realities that have been preached today will come true for you. 
So here's how we're going to do this. We're going to do this the same as last week. We're going to have some people come up and serve the meal, but we're not going to have them come to you. We're going to have all those who are going to take the meal come forward and take it back. So here, here's how that works. We're going to start on the front rows. We're going to come into the center aisle. We're going to file in and then go back around on the outside. And then somebody is going to come and bring you all the stuff over there on the side. So that's how we're going to do it. If those who are serving the meal will go ahead and come forward. I'm going to pray for 